our students have been in the Air Force for about 13 years, and they are there for their intermediate professional military education. It's the first time in their career where they have a whole pretty much a year set to learning more about national security and about air power. And they come in very uh, having a very heritage-centric understanding mm. of air power rather than a history centered one. And what I mean by that is the heritage. They've heard all the hurrah stories about how awesome air power is and how it can win wars by itself. And that's their understanding. But then we teach them history. We engage critically with air power and where it has worked well and where it hasn't and why. And that's a hard mental shift for them. And a lot of them never quite understand why we are seemingly bashing air power the whole time instead of what we're really doing is having them think critically about it. And so this history versus heritage distinction has come to the forefront more for me as, an, as a way to maybe help them understand why we teach air power the way we do. Is there anything else you wanted to yes. discuss? What? What I, do you got? <laughs> I want you to tell me how your research is a springboard from mine. Mm. Well, I, I think that... I think I mentioned to you yesterday, you know, that the historiography of Marine Corps cultures is pretty narrow. And when I read yours, I thought it was such an interesting approach because it put the fighting in the background and it forefronted the agency and the, like you said, the construction of the mythos and the identity. When we came to boot camp and I saw the, the green monster with all the knowledge we're going to get, because that's what they call it, is, is knowledge. And seeing that the history section was so thick, I'm like, yes, this is, I can't wait for these classes. And you were the only one. Huh? I was the only one. Yeah, I was the only, only recruit in the, in, the, uh, in the classroom going, you're not giving me enough. I want more. And, you know, you, you maybe not realize it at the time, but that drill instructor just up there. That first voice you heard was Dr. Heather P. Venable, an associate professor of military and security studies in the Department of Air Power at the United States Air Force Command and Staff College. She earned her PhD in military history from Duke University. She was also one of the two keynote speakers that were invited to speak at the Institute. Dr. Venable gave her talk titled, My Intellectual Journey Trying to Understand My Veteran Dad's Experience, during day six out of 10 of the UCF DOP Institute. Dr. Venable's inclusion in this institute and in this podcast series was key. Not only does she add a new voice, but more importantly, she offers a completely different perspective on veterans and broader military history. Dr. Venable's experience of teaching military history to currently serving members of the armed forces allowed the participating teachers of the Institute that you'll soon meet to use that as inspiration and motivation for their veteran history instruction. Despite the fact that the K-12 teacher's audience is vastly different from Dr. Venable's audience, the way she has approached the subject matter and successfully made a career out of it is still something the teachers can relate to and use for their VLP classroom projects. So yes, this episode paints a somewhat decent synopsis of the keynote talk she gave. However, describing the episode as just that is simply one-dimensional. The person who hosted this conversation, Jim Stoddard, is a major reason for this episode's elevated status and distinctive identity. For those of you that frequently listen to this feed, you will most likely recognize his voice and who he is. A Marine Corps veteran, and now a PhD candidate at UCF's Text and Technology program, he was featured on this feed in episode 27 and 28 of Knight's History Cast, where we talked about his experience going back to education after his service and his role in the Florida France Soldier Stories Project. 
another UCF Department of History Veterans Research Project. As you heard in the opening, and will continue to hear during the rest of the episode, Jim and Dr. Venable displayed a unique dynamism that I could possibly not have achieved if I were the sole host. For starters, they both share a common military background, Jim serving for 10 years and Dr. Venable's dad also being a Marine during Vietnam. As the title of her keynote talk alludes to, her dad's stories of the experience he had as a Marine propelled her to a life of understanding and studying the institutional framework of the military, specifically the Marine Corps. This ambition ultimately culminated into her 2019 book titled, How the Few Became the Proud, Crafting the Marine Corps Mystique, 1874 to 1918. An awesome, awesome title, by the way. Second, Dr. Venable is one of Jim's dissertation committee members. Their shared research interests further ignited the genuine and engaging conversation they had. So, for these reasons, it just made sense to let Jim, who's a part of UCF VLP, host this episode. Plus, he's great on the mic anyways. From her early career experiences researching this subject to the importance of teaching the combat experience to service members to how the few became the proud exactly, to how Jim is planning to expand on that research to the duality of history and myth. From the UCF Department of History and UCF's Veterans Legacy Program, I'm Sebastian Garcia, and this is Episode 2 of the 2023 UCF VOP Institute Podcast Series, History versus Heritage. This special edition of Night's History Cast is brought to you by UCF's Veteran Legacy Program, a partnership with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, National Cemetery Administration, NCA. And to make this podcast even more special, I'm actually not the one hosting it. Um, That will be Jim Stoddard, which uh, some of you may know from episode 27 and episode 28 of Night's History Cast, where where I interviewed him about his experiences going back to education after his service in the military. And then in 28, it was he was a part of the Florida France Solar Stories Project. And the reason why he's hosting this podcast today is because our guest is Dr. Heather Venable, who is his outside reader for his PhD dissertation. So I thought it would be pretty cool to let Jim fill in my role. And, you know, honestly, it'll probably be a better conversation than I would have had if it was just me. So I'm really excited for this, so if you hear me, um, jump in. It's just because I want to jump in and be annoying, but Jim, take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. Uh, Yes, uh, I'm flattered that you'll allow me to step in and guest host on your show. It's all part of my my plan to not only be the most repeated guest, but just take over in general, right? (laughs) Right. Um, So today, uh, as Sebastian mentioned, we're interviewing and having a conversation with uh, Dr. Heather Venable. Before I introduce her, though, I'd just like to say that we're recording in the St. Francis Barracks in St. Augustine, Florida. We're sitting in a, I believe, a 17th and then probably modified an 18th century room uh, with coquina walls and a fireplace, and it's very, very appropriate for a history podcast. And then most important to the Veterans Legacy Program is we are adjacent to the St. Augustine National Cemetery, which has uh, graves dating back to at least the 19th, early 19th century, some in the 18th. So very exciting to be doing that here. And uh, as I said, we're talking with Dr. Heather Venable today. 
Currently, she is an associate professor at the uh, Air Force's uh, Command and Staff College. Prior to that, she worked at the U.S. Naval Academy as a visiting professor where she taught Navy and Marine Corps history. She holds her Ph.D. from Duke University. Good morning. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for coming. We um, Last night, she was our keynote speaker for our uh, one of our, our sessions here uh, where we're teaching teachers how to research and write biographies on Florida veterans and bring that to their classroom with lesson plans and how to do that type of work in a K-12 environment. And we thought that Dr. Venable would be an excellent person to come and give a keynote talk as she's uh, done plenty of research on military and veteran history and has a personal connection to veterans. So again, uh, welcome. Very happy to have you here. And I guess we'll start with uh, how did you come to research marine history? Well, I kind of realized later on in life that I've been a kind of historian slash anthropologist my entire life and have been studying my dad and his experience in the Marine Corps and more specifically in the Vietnam War. And I wanted to understand his experience, why he chose the Marine Corps, why he chose to enlist during Vietnam and his experience in combat. Very cool. So was there ever an interest with you to join yourself or was it always more of an outsider analytical type way? I thought about it at various points in my life. The closest I came was when I married a Marine and we were in Pensacola and the flight school process was very long and I wasn't really doing much of anything except taking a few online courses and I reached out. I called the Navy recruiting office because I had just been through as a spouse through the basic school from the outside and didn't want to do that myself. So I called the Navy and said, hey, could we be stationed together? And they said no. Mm. So that was the, the end of my my possible pursuing a military life. <laughs> I had, uh, when I was in Intel school, I had a couple who were part of our instructor cadre, and we called them the Sergeants Jimenez. So, But that was, I think, the only time in my career, if I'm thinking correctly, that I ever worked with or was aware of a, a couple co-located. So yeah, I, I definitely believe that separation would have been a guaranteed thing. Well, I do think, though, that the military has probably gotten a little better at that. And I see in the Air Force, and maybe the Air Force is just better at this than <laughs> the Navy and the Marine Corps, at having, you see spouses work together, to uh, move around together, and they do try to do that. So I think that it's gotten better. And I think that is an important thing to do in terms of retention anyway. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So when did you formalize your interest in, in military Marine Corps history through uh, academics? When did that come about? Well, I was always more interested in diplomatic history, the tension between the U.S.'s rhetoric and the idea of being a kind of a city on the hill for the world, and the contrast between how it is actually in many ways used force um, and and done some kind of ugly things at times around the world. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be a diplomatic historian, and then I started taking a few military history classes and then really realized that the combat experience is just such a fascinating and rich experience. And to understand the left and right balance of human experience, you have to understand combat experience. And so military history became more interesting to me than diplomatic history, which is a lot of people usually do sitting around a table, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Not unlike we're doing today with blah, 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 right? <laughs> but this was hopefully more interesting. So that's that's really interesting. I, I um, 
when I when I got out of the military and um, went back to academia, I you know military history was of an interest, but I too was I think more interested in the political history. I took a few diplomatic history classes as an under, undergrad, and then in my masters, I kind of backed into military history through African history and researching the Mau Mau uprising, particularly with their homemade firearms. That's what I wrote my thesis on. But at the same time in that program, I was working with the Veterans Legacy Program, and that was continually reinforcing my interest and skill set for veteran research, which is, I think, how I got back into it for my dissertation side. We had that discussion last night about how if you have your whole map set out and you go through step by step, in a natural progression, mm -hmm. that may not actually be the best way to develop a person as a scholar because it is a single focused track and it may allow us for more creativity when we pursue different paths and change our course and veer in and out of things. I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I feel more well-rounded by what I've done through the VLP in addition to the traditional academic path with my thesis and even my dissertation work now um, because of the program I'm in requires uh, a more uh, diversified public history approach because it has a digital components and both in on the research and the production side. So yeah, I think the particularly with with the digital, the VLP has really come in handy for me for that. So yeah, I, I think it's definitely makes it for a more interesting scholar and a, and a, someone who asks maybe better questions. Um, when they come in in a more of a winding way. And I think also so much of history is being relegated and, and being cut from sort of public universities, private mm -hmm. universities as well. And when I think I, one of the reasons that I'm impressed by you guys' digital program and, and research is because then it's not just a thesis that sits on a dusty shelf. You're trying mm -hmm. to make your history living and, and reach out to various audiences. Yeah, I think that's so important to get it out of the ivory tower into the hands and eyes and, and ears of uh, the public. I think that's so important. So your book, which I, I don't think I mentioned the title yet, which is How the Few Became the Proud, which has become foundational to my own work, but was that, that basically a dissertation that became a, a book? How did that development occur? Well, many of my decisions in life have been made by both personal and practical reasons. Mm. And as I said, I started out as diplomatic historian. There I was in graduate school in Hawaii and getting any kind of funding for travel back to the mainland <laughs> would be expensive. And so I looked out for, okay, what kind of opportunities are out there? And I saw, I found a Marine Corps fellowship. I applied for it and I had was going to sort of try to integrate to make this fellowship fit with my diplomatic history. I was going to look at Marines in Mexican-American War compared to the Veracruz incident in 1914 mm. and compare, contrast, and see, okay, how had diplomacy changed? Then I walk into the archives talking about paths veering, and I'm reading these letters from Marines far from home, in the Mexican-American War, they're describing themselves as soldiers. And for, you know, all the Marines that I ever knew, you know, Jim wants to hit me. He wants to punch <laughs> me right now because I just <laughs> called him a soldier. <laughs> and they didn't have the same pride or some may even say arrogance that I, you know, saw in so many Marines. And so that formulated my question right then and there. How did the Marine Corps turn, morph into the institution that I knew 
And how did the culture seem to be so similar for my dad in Vietnam and then my husband? And just tiny little details like Marines facing their shoes, not with the toe towards the wall, but flipping them around and having them face out. Both my dad and my husband did that from their their boot camp experiences. So the weird sort of, not weird, <laughs> unique characteristics. That's of, more polite. Thank you. <laughs> the, the, you know, diplomatic, right? <laughs> the institution that I could see. And so I wanted to understand how that came to be and how the Marine Corps really constructed this culture that most people have assumed was just always there. And it wasn't. It was crafted between 1874 and 1918, as I argue. And, you know, that's something that this is me jumping in. <laughs> that's something that um, I remember Jim, when I interviewed him, that's going to be something, you know, about his Ph.D. dissertation, the institutional history of the Marine Corps. And I found that fascinating because you're right. A lot of people, including myself, until I met Jim and until I'm a part of this great program, you know, you assume these things were just kind of organic and natural, but they're actually crafted and they're very intentional. You know, yesterday at the hotel room, I was watching TV and the commercial, one of the commercials was the Marine Corps and it's the few, the proud. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I even think it's trademark. Like it has a little like rights reserve symbol. So I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating. And by the way, I love that the book title too. I'm a big nerd for titles and that's a great title. Well, I have a story about that and I think it's important for anyone that is writing or writing papers, writing articles I had a session where I whiteboarded titles and we came up with all of these ways to sort of think about how we would come up with a title. And I was working with a, an experienced editor at the time and we came up with some stuff, but nothing really stuck. And I still remember where I was. I was walking out from my office to my car and how the few became the proud just jumped into my head. And mm. that's a really important example of how creativity works when you step away from it, when you're not even thinking about it consciously and you're just letting your mind sort of do the, the the background work and you just go on a walk or if you're a Marine, you go running, <laughs> great things can happen when you are just let your mind roam. So, Yeah. I mean, for me, there's been, especially in the writing process, there's been a few times where I'll wake up in the night and I can't sleep and all of a sudden these ideas just start flooding in and I... I, I always think of the Seinfeld episode where uh, Jerry wakes up in the middle of the night with a joke in his mind and he scribbles it down on this napkin and then is laughing and falls back asleep. And for the remainder of the show, they're trying to decipher what he wrote on that napkin. So to prevent that, I've, I always I have my notes on my phone and my my wife on more than one occasion, she's like, what are you, what are you doing on your phone at three in the morning? I had an idea. I have to write it down. There, there's a way I can make an argument or a way I can distill something a little bit more, you know, more clearly or something. And um, better than the, the napkin on the bedside table. So, And that's when I do my best teaching preparation, when I wake up at three, because I, my body always wakes up early when I have to teach. And I'm too lazy to get out of bed, so I just sit there and I start thinking. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm sort of a captive to my brain, and then I come up with my best teaching ideas, too. Very cool. I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's always seems to be when you may not be able to do something about it. You know, you're in the, the shower or something mm -hmm. like that. It's like, oh, I don't have anything to... <laughs> right. Bubbles. Yeah. Right, right. Have a whiteboard in the shower or something. <laughs> you know, they actually sell those things, right? Do they? Yeah, they do. Yeah. 
my girlfriend was like, you know, they have like these notepads that are for the shower because a lot of people get great ideas in the shower <laughs> and they stole that. Um, I have not tried it yet, so I don't know. Well, it... Father's Day is coming up if you're listening, Danielle. <laughs> That's really good. So the, the book comes out in 2019 and I think I came across it in, I think it was like the winter of 2020. And I mentioned in, in my introductory notes to you last night, when you're a teacher or a student, most of what you're reading is, is someone else is telling you what to read. And it's so hard to find time for your, your own research, let alone your own pleasure reading. Audiobooks have been a great thing for me for that, for fiction. But when I saw that, it's like, I have to make time for this. Because the, the title, the, the, uh, the book cover... I was like, this, I, you know, I could just, you know, I did judge the book by the cover and it's like, this is going to fit well because with my own research, I, you know, I'm looking at the 20th century and, you know, you take it up to 1918, 1919 a little bit. And, um, I'm like, she's at least going to get me to where I can, I can run maybe from there a little bit and reading through it. And I think you even say in your first chapter, you know, this is maybe the, more dry one or so you have a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm like, no, no, this is good. I need this. <laughs> this is exactly what I'm looking for. And then especially into the early 20th century and the, uh, the officers writing those letters and writing those articles, it just, and then your, your bibliography at the end of everything that you was like, I just, I mine that for other sources, other primary sources. I can go, my, my bibliography went from, you know, a, you know, very short to pages of, uh, of things I can use. So I, I have to thank you personally for, for writing that book and, and, you know, conveniently publishing it when you did, which <laughs> timed out well for me. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> thank you. So you, did that come out while you were still at the Naval Academy? No, I, I did some research while I was at the Naval Academy refining it. And the most interesting thing that I found that changed my, between my dissertation and the manuscript was coming across the a picture of the male clerks that were mm-hmm. supposedly freed to fight by the enlistment of the first 305 female Marines. And after looking at the picture and thinking, well, I thought they were supposed to be fighting in France and doing some more digging, I discovered that those men had already been declared physically unfit for overseas service. Mm-hmm. So then the inclusion of women just became a grand rhetorical gesture uh, which the Marine Corps is so very good at. So that was one of the the changes in the story. And I think another was the whole um, appreciating further how much it couldn't, the Marine Corps could not construct this, this ethos or, or myth or, or culture without larger cultural changes in the U.S. occurring as mm. well. And so I was always curious about why these 19th century officers would brag on them on the Marines in letters to each other, why they would talk about how it was such an elite institution, but then not do that same thing in public. They wrote the driest histories that were full of letters of the Navy bragging about them. And if you want to can't sleep at 3am, I highly recommend <laughs> Richard Collins history of the US Marine Corps. There are two different versions. And it's just the driest thing ever, which was not reflected in their personal correspondence. And so you really had to have a transformation in culture about what was acceptable. You know, now we were all about influencers and things like that, where these guys would have fit right in, but that wasn't okay 
back then. So it required a huge shift. And it goes back to the whole war in society and how those two things are inextricably linked. And then I think it was in the early 20th as advertising uh, became more of a of a boastful thing, something you could do with your products instead of just saying, I have a, a bushel of apples, but then you start to brag about how red and delicious they are. And I think you know, that you're saying, you know, with the society changing in that way and not looking back in any regard, I think it's only gotten bigger and more braggadocious Yes, in so many ways. But the Marine Corps maybe, uh, you know, uh, covered up arrogance, we'll say, maybe was able to show more, more of a light, more, more come to the forefront, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And they really seized upon that before any other service and had an advantage. I don't think it made it into the book, but I did find a piece of evidence. I think it was in 1912 or so where the Marine Corps was doing so well with its recruiting that it actually reached out. It was helping the Navy meet its, its recruiting numbers as well. So that was nice of them to, to share. And I'm thinking of today's recruiting environment. That right. <laughs> Amazing. So then after, did you go from the Naval Academy to the Air Command and Staff College? Was that from one to the other? Or was there something in the middle? Or There's a, having a, a kid mm. in between. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And then I was actually pushing my baby boy around in his stroller when I had a call from my friend who was Air Command and Staff College. And he said, hey, we have this online opportunity, come come teach for us. And I was advising uh, their students on their theses. And then from there, I wanted to, to grow and, and pursue more opportunities with them. So then I started teaching their air power course, which required a lot of learning because I read one book in graduate school about mm-hmm. air power. So I think I realized that in graduate school, you read this huge list of books and you get the PhD, so therefore you're an expert. Mm-hmm. And I've learned probably just as much outside of graduate school since graduating than I did in graduate school. So the ride never ends. Oh, for sure. I, I Similarly, I think a little bit when, um, you know, Marine Corps Intel School has a heavy ground focus, as you can imagine. And then my first duty station was with an F-18 unit. So all of a sudden, as a Lance Corporal in a Staff Sergeant's billet, I'm supposed to be an air intelligence expert, and I'm surrounded by all these pilots who... How did you know they were pilots? Did they tell you? Regularly. (laughs) You know, hi, my name's Bob. I'm a pilot. You know, because probably the basic introduction, because, you know, you have to. It's it's almost as like being a Marine. If you don't say it in the first 30 seconds, (laughs) your head may uh, may explode. But uh, yeah, so being around them and knowing that they know all this stuff, then I'm going to be able to tell them. And it's like, what do I read? What do I, you know, how, trying to become this this air expert over the next few years and, you know, kind of grew into it a little bit and to the detriment of probably forgetting a lot of what the ground side stuff that I had to know too was. But yeah, that that learning curve. And, you know, I always joke, in fact, I was texting with some friends this morning because they, one of them just said that there's a command historian position opened up in Okinawa for the Air Force. And I said, oh, it's at probably at Kadena. I said, we, even though in the Marine Corps, when we would go to Okinawa with the air unit, we went to the Air Force installations because it was always so much nicer. The temporary housing was nicer than the permanent Marine Corps housing. So I guess long way around. So how did you notice or deal or analyze maybe the cultural shift from 
Marine Corps history and the Naval Academy over to the Air Force? Well, having spent a lot of time on Marine Corps bases, the first thing that really blew my mind was I get to Maxwell Air Force Base, and I'm going around the different you know offices to, to get the check-in process, and everyone's smiling at me. And the Marine Corps bases, no, there's no smiling. We're all very serious, doing serious things. So it was just more of a laid-back, comfortable environment. So that was a a, a big cultural shift. Oh, I bet. I bet. So now you mentioned you're teaching air power. Uh, who are your students? Who are you teaching? Our students have been in the Air Force for about 13 years. We also have uh, majors from sister services as well. In a typical classroom, we'll have maybe one army officer and uh, maybe one one officer from the Navy. We'll also have two to three international officers ranging from uh, various countries in Africa to India to South America to Norway. They just come from all across the world and offer a lot of different perspectives for us. And like I said, classes of 13 with about two to three um, women, usually two, sometimes three. And they are there for their intermediate professional military education. It's the first time in their career where they have a whole pretty much a year set to learning more about national security and about air power. And they come in very uh, having a very heritage-centric understanding mm. of air power rather than a history centered one. And what I mean by that is the heritage. They've heard all the hurrah stories about how awesome air power is and how it can win wars by itself. And that's their understanding. But then we teach them history. We engage critically with air power and where it has worked well and where it hasn't and why. And that's a hard mental shift for them. And a lot of them never quite understand why we are seemingly bashing air power the whole time instead of what we're really doing is having them think critically about it. And so this history versus heritage distinction has come to the forefront more for me as, an, as a way to maybe help them understand why we teach air power the way we do. I may or may not borrow that phrasing for uh, for my own work because I think it's, it's very appropriate, uh, you know, as I'm studying history written and by Marines and taught to Marines. There's so much it's probably more heritage you know written taught to marines especially at the enlisted level so I, I think that's a really great way to frame it and for me i mean i feel like that would kind of bring me along a little bit more and oh that, that is a good way you know kind of interrogate my my beliefs and my thinking that's really great so you're teaching that. I think you, you mentioned in your keynote last night that you're also teaching an elective. Can you tell us a little bit about that? My elective is, well, it has two different titles, but it's the same course. One is On Killing, the Historical Experience of Combat. The other is War Stories. The reason I've changed it away from War Stories to On Killing is because then I get the army guys who are just like, we're just going to sit around and tell war stories. Mm. And I want them to come with a little bit more critical mindset. But what we do is we start with what I still think is remains the best theoretical introduction to thinking about the combat experience, Dave Grossman's On Killing. Huge disclaimer, Dave Grossman is a very controversial figure, and you should think and read critically about everything. So the same goes for him. But it brings in so many different perspectives and, and ways to think about the combat experience, specifically killing, that I think it is very useful. We then challenge that book and, and refer back to it and, and see how our own ideas are developing in different ways. We start with the Greeks because the Greeks are who we look back to so much 
and they really shape our identity and our image of, of what a warrior should be, even though we it's all a construction, just like the Marine Corps. Mm. And if the more that we learn about Greek warfare, we realize that the Spartans are not these sort of fearless, invincible warriors that we think. A lot of that was the myth that they that they sold, and that has, of course, a psychological advantage in warfare. And then we go all the way through today. Uh, we look at pilots and intelligence analysts and sensor operators for the Air Force's remotely piloted aircraft. And then we end with Carl Merlante's What It Is Like to Go to War, which takes his Vietnam experience and really shows that the combat experience, even once you leave the battlefield or however you want to understand the combat experience, never really ends. It keeps going on and your own relationship to your experience evolves and, and matures and changes if you deal with it and don't just shove it into a dark corner of yourself. Mm. Did they just come to you and say, hey, Dr. Venable, make an elective? Or was that a kind of a pre-existing course that you modified in your own way? Or did you get to do that from scratch? I did it from scratch. And to be honest, I don't remember how I decided to do it or how I picked the books. But I really enjoyed it. And I haven't made that many changes. The The one book that I've brought in was the book about Soviet female pilots who mm-hmm. fought for years without going home. I mean, there was no R&R in, in resorts or anything. They didn't even see their kids for years mm. and were constantly engaged in combat. And that book came out a few years before women in the U.S. military were incorporated into uh, different the sort of holdout combat roles. And it really, I don't know if she wrote it for that reason as a sort of a, a political act, but it helps affirm that that women can be full partners in in combat. Hmm. That's really great. I, the idea of uh, creating my own course is both intriguing and intimidating at the same time. So I'm I'm uh, jealous and and and, and awed or appreciate that you got to do that. That's so so amazing. So outside of the classroom, what do you what are you working on these days? What do you or is there another book in the works or anything like that? Right now, I'm trying to finish a volume that it's an edited collection. We workshopped it last year, and it looks at the intersections between theory and technology as warfare is developing, as technology seems to be moving so quickly. Uh, Historians like to throw a lot of cold water on the people that are like, everything's changing, everything's Mm -hmm. changing. We tend to be more, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Of course, that's not necessarily true. There is change, but we're trying to think about it in a long perspective and not just get caught up in presentism. And so I'm hoping to send that out for peer review in July. I think it will be a very different approach to thinking about technology than a lot of things that are out there and may be useful and help our students just take a deep breath. Uh, not just like, okay, now we're going to chase hypersonics. Now we're going to do AI. And every day it's like this, we're all running around with our, uh, like chickens without heads. Mm. And does it have a catchy title too, or? (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. Waiting for that parking lot walk inspiration. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How the few became the expensive. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss? What? What do you got? (laughs) I want you to tell me how your research is a springboard from mine. Mm. Well, I I think that, I think I mentioned to you yesterday, you know, the the historiography of Marine Corps culture is is pretty narrow. And 
when I read yours, I thought it was such an interesting approach because it put the fighting in the background and it forefronted the agency and the, like you said, the construction of the mythos and the identity. And I think so much of that, that you talk about in your book, feeds into the history education standards that particularly enlisted Marines receive in boot camp. And looking at those primary source documents like that I got to do in at MCRD San Diego and seeing how the curriculum changed over time but always remained uh, what always remained was that uh center of the center of gravity is the heritage I would say and they've gotten more of the history in there over time but it still comes down to the the glory of the marine with his rifle and his, you know, his. I rifle. noticed you said that. Um, and you know, then they, you know, well, you have to have a paragraph in there for women or a paragraph in there for African Americans, and it's like, well, they're there too. You can blend it better than that, but it's always just seems to be a not just well, we're going to add another compartment to the story. So, looking at maybe the, the genesis of a lot of that mythology that came about at the turn of the century. In between those dates you're talking about of, of 1874 to 1918, and how that's carried on to why your your dad and and your your ex husband put their shoes the same way. And when you said that, I realized I do that too. I didn't. I know it goes back to boot camp. I'm sure, but I I it never really registered that I was actively doing that until she mentioned it. And now I'm going to be very self aware whenever I take my shoes off now. <laughs> so thank you. But I think that has has a lot to. To do with it, because it's it's really kind of framed how I'm looking at this stuff, and because you know when, when I went to you know I grew up a history nerd, you know I couldn't get enough of the History Channel, all that kind of introductory type of stuff. And when we came to boot camp, and I saw the the green monster with all the knowledge we're going to get, because I mean, that's what they call it is is knowledge, and seeing that the history section was so thick, I'm like, yes, this is. I can't wait for these classes. And you were the only one. Huh? I was the only one. Yeah, I was the only only recruit in the in the uh, in the classroom. Going, you're not giving me enough. I want more. Than and you know, you, you maybe not realize at the time, but that drill instructor's just up there. He, some of them, I think now that they do have some historians, some experts come in and teach those classes. But as I remember, when I when I was there in 2003, it was just the DI. And, you know, he may have had an interest where he did his own other research or whatever, but probably for the most part, they were working off of their curriculum that matched what we were seeing. And that's what you got because, you know, not that questions were, you know, you didn't really feel, you didn't have the freedom probably to ask a question as you would in a regular classroom because it is the drill instructor that controls your life and death at the front. But I always wanted to ask more and get more from that. So, now I feel like I finally get the opportunity to to do that and to really dig into how those were written, who was behind that that genesis, and I feel like I've got some names and some sources that were the beginning of it because of of your book. Well, I cannot wait to read your book. Thank you, thank you very much. Well, thank you, uh, Doctor Venable, for sitting I down with us. I actually have oh, one yes, more Sebastian. question. Yes, what do you got? I, uh, yeah, maybe my question has sub questions like they always do. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of this. Institute is teaching veterans history. Granted, you don't teach to K through 12 students, but that's what these teachers are doing right now. And I found it very interesting when during your keynote presentation last night, you were going through basically the course materials you use when you teach veterans experiences to veterans. 
if you would have to pick one out of the ones you you mentioned, all the books, the documentaries, the novel, which one do you think is the most significant? My favorite, I think, for getting at the range of the human experience is Carl Merlante's What It's Like to Go to War. And I think that that is important because he talks about killing as sacred, which I think is is good for the military combatant who is killing to think of it that way. I think it leads to less moral trauma, hopefully. And I also think it looks at how we each have a good side and a dark side and how we have to be cognizant of that in war or we unleash what we don't want to Mm. unleash, especially as the United States. And in general, why do you think teaching veterans history broadly is important to what whoever, whether it's K through 12 students, whether it's veterans themselves, whether it's civilians? Well, I think that we think about the military institution as central to the U.S. because of what it has done in war. But I think if we think about it again from the war and society perspective, the way that it has pushed and evolved U.S. society is probably more powerful. But I think that we've lost sight of that because of a lot of the political divide right now and the controversies around it and the way that we've put the military in some ways up on a pedestal Mm. instead of realizing that like anything, um, it's flawed. It's interesting. I I looked up the the Google reviews for St. Francis Barracks and I was going through and you can see this pedestal. Everyone here who comes to visit that's a civilian is like, oh my goodness, these people are so special. They are so nice. They are so friendly. And are are people in the military really more friendly than the civilians on the street? Well, some of them are and some of them aren't. But we have glamorized the military to some to such extent. And that's problematic in the history of U.S. civil military relations and how we need to – our military serves the country. We don't exist to have a military. The military – exists for the u.s well thank you any more any save round sebastian Nah, that that's well good i want to thank you for letting me take the car out for a spin i hope uh (laughs) you drove it returning without any scratches or dents no scratches no dents fill up the tank on the return you did a fantastic job all right well thank you and and thank you so much heather venable for for sitting down with us and coming out to our institute and being so generous with your your time and and knowledge. It's been fantastic. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you. On the next episode of the 2023 UCF VOP Institute podcast series. I've learned how to research and I think I can apply it as a teacher to help my kids, but I'm not sure my students would be able to being so young to like really look at those census records, to look at the um, draft cards, stuff Uh like that. But I think the best thing that has happened is that I now am able to research and I know where to start. I know the websites to go to. And um, so it's kind of been like trial by error this week. And then having such knowledgeable people to help me over those plateaus has been invaluable. I agree. And, you know, learning how to research where to look, uh, learning how to actually read and look at some of those primary resources and all of the information that you can gather from an internment card or a draft card or even looking at the censuses that indicate, the, you know, what their family dynamic was. So 
all of that in itself has helped prepare me, you know, to teach my my students, you know, how to at least get started with that process. And of course, hopefully through the years that that will instill in them a desire to learn more, you know, and do more independently. History is scary. History is very real. It's honest and um, it's hard to teach. And I think when you're given the stepping stones to teach that hard stuff, it's beneficial to the kids. I think it takes teachers like us to say it's okay to teach real history. What drew me is the uniqueness of the program and the focus that it's bringing to our veterans. Um, I come from a family that is full of veterans from the Army to the Air Force. When um, I received the email, I was so interested and wanted to participate to see, you know, just how we could bring the focus to veterans and their, um, their sacrifice in helping our country. This episode was directed, produced, written, and edited by me, Sebastian Garcia, and hosted by Jim Stodder, and featured Dr. Heather Venable. Executive producers are me, Sebastian Garcia, and Dr. Amelia Lyons. The 2023 UCF VOP Institute podcast series is brought to you by the UCF Department of History and UCF's Veterans Legacy Program, a partnership with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs National Cemetery Administration.